As we said last week, this is the first Sunday of Advent, the start of a new liturgical year. And when we're in the season of Advent, what we're thinking about is that we're waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And this year, boy, are we ever. Um, and also while we're waiting, we're preparing. We're preparing for Jesus to come back, preparing our hearts. And we're reminding ourselves that all of our hopes hang on his coming back. So during Advent, we remember that it kind of really doesn't matter how bad things in the world get down here in the meantime, right? Um, how much civilization deteriorates, how much the country falls apart, or even how much the church falls apart, because our hope isn't rooted in any of those things. It's not rooted in human progress. It's not even rooted in the health of the church. It's rooted only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. And it's rooted in his ability to come back and make everything right again in a breath when he comes. We don't believe that we can save ourselves or that any mechanism of human technology or politics or progress can fix our problems. So we are fully confident that when Jesus comes back, what he's going to find down here is a big mess, right? He's going to find a mess. But we also believe that no matter how messy it is, Jesus is going to be able to clean it up and make everything right again. He can straighten every crooked thing and make every sad thing come untrue. And that's where our hope is resting. So you might ask the question, well, that's very nice. That's very comforting. That's a nice thing to believe. But is that anything more than just whistling in the dark to believe that? What solid ground do we have to stand on when we believe these things? Why should we expect that this guy, Jesus, can do this thing that thousands of years of humanity has failed to do? So where can we look to give ourselves confidence that Jesus is coming and that he will rescue us? And that's kind of really what Advent is all about. Uh, and it's where the Advent witnesses come in. So you saw the Bodo family at the beginning lighting the candles or one of the candles of the Advent wreath. And you saw that there were four candles around the white one. Those four candles represent the four witnesses um, of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, the prophets, and then in the New Testament, John the Baptist and the Virgin Mary. And those are four groups of people to whom God made very big promises and for whom we can see now he delivered on all of those promises. And that establishes God's character as both a promise making and a promise keeping God who is able to do what people consider impossible and is always trustworthy and true to his word. So if we look at their lives it will give us confidence for our lives. So today we're going to focus on the first witness, which is the witness of the patriarchs. And that's the family of Abraham. And Sarah's going to show us her globe again. Okay. So kiddos, can you come forward to the screen now so we can see your faces? Hi. All right. So I just want to remind you, hey, John, I need, a, I need some screen help here. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I just want to remind you, Hang on. Okay, here we go. I just want to remind you um, that we, what we talked about when we were studying Genesis together, which is that the 
first part of Genesis. Do you remember this? Give me a thumbs up, kids, if you remember this. The first 12 chapters of 11 chapters of Genesis are about what happens to the whole world. And then what happens after that? Do you want to um, mime it for me? I'm watching. I'm watching. What happens in Genesis 12? Do you guys remember? We take a magnifying glass and the story zooms in on one family, the story of one family. And that's the family that God promised he would use to rescue the whole world. And that family was Abraham's family. So Abraham's family is called the patriarchs. They're the first ones that God made promises to and kept those promises. And so today we are gonna focus on the story of Abraham's great grandson. So not his grandson, but the son of his grandson, his great grandson, Joseph. And we're gonna look at Joseph's life. We're gonna do a little play to remind you what happened in Joseph's life. And then we will dismiss you and talk a little more about Joseph with the grownups. Are you ready? You ready kids? Can I have thumbs up? You ready to see a play? Okay, here we go. This is the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he was son number 11. So with 10 older brothers, you wouldn't expect Joseph to get very much attention. But Joseph kept having interesting dreams. He dreamed that his whole family was going to bow down and worship him. And then when Joseph told his brothers about his dreams, you can imagine how popular that made Joseph with all of his older brothers. To make matters worse, Joseph got more than his share of his father's attention. He was Jacob's favorite son. And Jacob made that very clear by giving Joseph a special gift, a coat. Most Bibles, most translations call it a coat of many colors. It was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and pearl and bonnet. No, 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 stop that. A much more likely translation of this tricky Hebrew word is that it was a long sleeved tunic. Aww. Sorry, Andrew Lloyd Webber. But the point is, it was a fancy, expensive coat, and it set Joseph above his brothers. And that, of course, made them crazy yeah! with jealousy. So, first chance they got, the brothers ganged up on Joseph and attacked him. They would have killed him if Reuben hadn't spoken up to save his life. Instead, they sold Joseph as a slave to a group of traveling Ishmaelite traders for 20 shekels of silver. 
And then the brothers went home and they convinced their father Jacob that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Father, look! We found this in the field! He must have been killed by a wild animal! But in fact, he had been taken to Egypt and sold as a slave to Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. Well, slave! So it was a great disaster in Joseph's life. But despite his traumatic experiences, he remained faithful to the Lord. And the Lord blessed everything Joseph did for Potiphar. In our reading today, it said that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph did well and he got promoted. But then trouble came in the form of Potiphar's wife. She tried to convince Joseph to flirt with her, but he did the right thing and refused her. Here's what he said. My master has not kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife, but she still blamed him anyway and accused him of doing the exact thing he said he wouldn't do. And poor Joseph ended up in prison for it. He was locked up for a bunch of years, but God continued to bless him and gave him the ability to interpret dreams. Some time later, Pharaoh's chief baker and his chief cupbearer both ended up in prison with Joseph. And while they slept, each of them had a dream. And when they woke, they told Joseph their dreams, and he interpreted each one of them, telling them that one of them would be freed, but the other would die. And three days later, on Pharaoh's birthday, it came to pass, just as Joseph had said, the baker died. And the cupbearer was freed. Much later, when King Pharaoh himself started having dreams, the chief cupbearer remembered Joseph and he told Pharaoh the story of the Hebrew prisoner who could interpret dreams. So Pharaoh summoned Joseph and told him all about his own troubling dreams. And Joseph gave him the interpretation. There would be seven years of lots of food coming, but after that there would be seven years of famine. Pharaoh recognized the spirit of God within Joseph and he was so impressed that he elevated Joseph to be his right-hand man. Pharaoh gave him his ring and his daughter in marriage and set him over the whole land of Egypt as its governor. And Joseph set right to work, saving not only Egypt, but also the surrounding world. Because during the seven years of lots of food, he carefully stored away food so that during the seven years of famine, 
he could not only feed the Egyptians, but also sell food to the surrounding nations. The famine drove Joseph's brothers, 10 of the other 11 sons, down to Egypt and right into Joseph's presence, looking for food. And he recognized them immediately, but they did not recognize him. His Egyptian clothes and makeup disguised him. So they bowed down to him in fulfillment of his dreams so many years before. Then through a series of schemes and trips back and forth, Joseph managed to bring his father Jacob and all 11 brothers down to Egypt. And he revealed to them who he truly was, their long lost brother. He forgave his brothers for their terrible sins against him. And Jacob, who had thought his beloved son was dead, received him back alive. And because of Joseph, Jacob's whole family was honored by Pharaoh and given land in Egypt to settle in. So the whole family of Abraham, all Abraham's relatives moved there. And that's where we leave them at the end of the book of Genesis. Amen. Well, that's the end of our little play. And um, we're going to keep going and tell the grown-ups uh, what it means and why Joseph is like our Lord Jesus. Um, but if that's the end of the children's time and patience, then they're welcome to um, head out at this point. Uh, Sarah, why don't you pray for our children? Yeah. But before you go, kiddos, I have an assignment for you, okay? I want you to quiz your parents at lunch today or maybe at dinner. This is important. You have to hear the quiz question because you're going to check and make sure your parents are paying attention, okay? Your quiz question for your parents is this. How was Jesus's life like Joseph's life? How was Jesus's life like Joseph's life? So kids, you get to decide when the test is at lunch or bedtime or whatever, but you need to ask your quest, your parents, how was Jesus's life like Joseph's life? So let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much for these children. I thank you for um, making yourself known to us in wonderful stories about what you've done in history. And we pray that you would soften their hearts to know what you're like in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So um, I actually, while we were doing that play, noticed something about the story, which I haven't noticed before, which is that twice in Joseph's life, his clothing was used to tell a lie about him. Did you notice that? Twice. So the first time is that his uh, coat of many colors, if we'll call it that, was used to tell a lie that he was dead. But then second, um, Potiphar's wife used his coat again to tell a lie about him that he um, had gone to bed with her. So I thought that was, I just noticed that as we were telling it. Um, don't know what that means, but I just noticed it. So um, we're going to talk about uh, why the story of Joseph points ahead to Jesus. And actually, it prefigures the life of the Savior um, in some very striking and amazing ways. Joseph is one of the very few heroes in the Bible who are consistently faithful to God with no obvious sin. There aren't many Old Testament figures um, whose sins aren't recorded in great detail, um, but Joseph is one of those, and that's very rare. And the life of Joseph points ahead to the greater Messiah that was to come. So Joseph had the love and approval of his father, but he was betrayed by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver and sold into the hands of Gentiles, right? The brother who had the idea of betraying him was 
Judah. Jesus, much later, also had the love and approval of his father, but was also betrayed into the hands of Gentiles, this time for 30 pieces of silver, and his betrayer was Judas. Joseph was carried away from the promised land to Egypt at a young age, and Jesus was carried away from the promised land to Egypt as a two-year-old. Joseph remained faithful to God in the face of repeated temptation, and so did Jesus. And the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Joseph's life made him a blessing to the people around him and brought him up into the courts of the king. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Joseph was the son of Jacob, to whom God gave the name Israel. So Israel thought that his beloved son was dead and then later received him back alive. Israel then named Joseph his firstborn son because he gave Joseph a double share in the inheritance. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the true firstborn son of Israel, who was also seen to be dead and was then later received back alive to become what Paul calls the firstborn from the dead. After he met, re reunited with his brothers, Joseph forgave his treacherous brothers, just as Jesus forgave Israel, calling out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we also see that the whole pattern of Joseph's life was to go down and up again, right? So he started off beloved in his father's house. He was loved. He was honored. And then the, fir the first part of the story is that it says, uh, a sinking down in repeated steps of going down. He goes down into a pit, then he goes down to Egypt and down into slavery, and finally down into prison that he doesn't deserve. He hits rock bottom and then he turns around and he rises up again, rises meteorically up to new life, up to the king's right hand, up to a place of power from which he reaches out to save the whole world at the time. And this is, of course, exactly the same pattern as Jesus's own life. He starts off in his father's house, loved, honored, worshipped by angels. He voluntarily leaves it to, get, to sink down to a Bethlehem stable, down to a life of poverty, down to rejection and betrayal by his own people, and down to a traitor's death that he doesn't deserve before turning around and rising back up up to new life, up to the king's right hand, up to the place of ultimate power from which he reaches out to save the whole world. So we see these stories are very, there's lots of overlap, they're very similar. And the story of Joseph points ahead. It really prefigures the coming of Jesus, the Messiah that was to come. And when we think about that connection, Jesus proves and also Joseph proves that God is able to turn things around. He's able to radically change the story. He's able to take someone from the very lowest place imaginable and put them in the highest place imaginable. He's able to pluck someone out of prison, out of anonymity, even out of the grave and put them on the throne. And it works very differently from the way the world works. So the world, people ascend in little steps, in incremental steps, usually by their own merits or by the people they know, and they always moving forward. If you want to get to the highest positions, you never go backwards. You always go forward and you have to go forward steadily and rapidly. 
But that's not the way it works with God. God is able to take someone from a prison and put them on a throne. And we've seen him do it with many, many others of his followers, not just Joseph and Jesus. So Joseph's life points ahead to the Messiah, Jesus. But then because Jesus's life is like Joseph's life, it also shows that this is a pattern of a faithful life to God. It shows that it's not the exception, but the rule that actually the faithful life that follows God will also follow this pattern of down and up again. Okay, and that's really helpful and important to us in this season because it helps us not to despair. Because we all know that 2020 has been a really down year in lots of ways. Uh, it's probably been a down year for us personally, and it's certainly been a down year for the church, the church speaking as a whole, speaking as a national church. So thinking about the national church across denominations, this has been a very down year, a, a year of shrinking attendance, of shrinking budgets, um, of, of church closures and shrinking political influence. It's been a year of scandal and of increased disrespect and dislike in the eyes of the public. And some of this downward trend is totally deserved by the church because we have not been faithful to our Lord Jesus or to his gospel. And some of it is also undeserved because we have been faithful and the world just doesn't like that. But either way, we don't despair when things seem to take a turn for the worse, because our lives and our reputations are not in the hands of men, they are in the hands of God. And a season of heading downward is not necessarily the wrong direction for us as individuals or as a community. It might be that it's a kind of death that comes before resurrection, a necessary pruning that comes before growth and fruitfulness. And that is what we believe it is this year. So Joseph, he was languishing in an Egyptian prison cell, had so much reason for complete despair, didn't he? He was far from home, far from his family, far from anyone who knew his history or his God, and he was treated unjustly as a criminal. People had lied about him and uh, other powerful people had believed those lies. So what did Joseph have to hope in? What did he have to believe in? but he held on to God. He was faithful to God. Little would he have imagined that before he died, he would see the king, he would see Pharaoh himself honoring his own dear father, Jacob. How would he have imagined that could ever happen? But in God's power, it did. So for us too, however much reason for despair we think we have, we don't despair because God can always change the story and he has a proven track record of doing so. So what does it mean in the meantime? Um, I've been thinking about what this means in the meantime and this phrase kept coming back to me and I think it's the Lord's word for us this morning. Uh, it's the word that Churchill used that he prepared for the British people during the Second World War. And you've certainly seen this phrase plastered all over the place on bumper stickers, and coffee mugs and t-shirts and fridge magnets, like all over this country, as well as all over England. You've seen it say, keep calm and carry on, right? You've certainly seen that. Uh, it's not as popular now as it was five years ago, but it's still around. Um, I wonder if you know that um, Churchill and his team at the time created this whole public messaging war and things were looking really, really bad 
for England, but they never released the campaign and no one in Britain had ever heard of it until just a few years ago. Um, and the reason that Churchill and his team never released it was because it was the messaging that they had prepared for the British people in the event that we lost the Second World War in the event that the Nazis took over and the English people fell under Nazi control. It was at that point that Churchill and his team were going to release this whole campaign, keep calm and carry on. That's what it was for. Um, and uh, the campaign was just never released at the time, and it just uh, sat in a filing cabinet somewhere for decades um, until in the early 2000s, it was rediscovered and finally released and became a global sensation. Um, and it remains just a really good word for us today. Keep calm and carry on. It says, don't panic. Keep doing what you've been doing. Help is on the way. Because we know that if we fall prey to a sense of fear and rising panic, then the only thing that's going to produce in us is unfaithfulness and sin. So if we fall prey to an unbridled fear of disease and death, then when we look at our neighbor, we're not going to feel it, find it easy to love that neighbor. Instead, we're going to fear that neighbor, hate, maybe hate that person, judge them for their decisions instead of loving them. And if we despair about the economy and the stock market and the job market, then we might be tempted to do unholy things to keep our jobs or to take jobs that we have no business doing. And we might cease to be generous with our money to the glory of God. And then if we really believe that the sky is falling, we might be tempted to ease our sense of panic with things like alcohol or drugs or sex or to commit the terrible sin of ending our own lives. I know this has been a rough year in the world, but God is still with us as he promised to be, and our real hope is totally unchanged by this year because we are waiting for Jesus to come back. And he told us that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. We have no excuse for despair as children of God, and we have no excuse for unfaithfulness to our Lord. Look at Joseph and take strength because Joseph could stay faithful and true to his God in front of Potiphar's wife when nothing in his life had been going well or was going right for him. And then so can we today. For we know that God is in the business of vindicating those who are honest, of rescuing those who wait for him and of raising up the dead. He has promised to come and he is on the way. So sometimes our lives take a downward turn before God raises us up, but this is not the end of the story. It's only the messy middle. So keep calm and carry on. Amen.